the apostle says, Now the word of Almighty God, Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of Almighty God that you have inspired through your holy prophets and apostles. Teach us now as we consider this passage. Help us to learn the lessons that you have for us to know the truth that it might set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. brief review of this book of Romans to this thus far that we've looked at. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 we have the salutation and greeting, the theological foundations for this letter. Chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 we have the theme, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. We have chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 the universal depravity of Jews and Gentiles, and the total depravity of each individually, and therefore the first thesis of the book, you cannot be justified by the works of the law. Then from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, we have justification by faith alone, that this is the necessary conclusion, the second thesis of the book, that this is a scriptural conclusion, and that this demonstrates the abounding grace of God where sin abounds. Chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 23, we have the subject of the law and the believer. Slavery to sin being broken, remaining sin being struggled with, the victory in Jesus over sin, both now progressively and finally in heaven and also at the resurrection of the body. Then we saw in chapter 8, verses 24 through 39, our hope in Christ, the Spirit's intercession, all things for good, and what I have, do, uh, I have termed a paean of praise for the love of God in Christ, making us more than conquerors. Now then, chapter 9. I have a brief outline there. You'll notice in your notes, verses 1 through 5, the apostles' sincere and divinely inspired sorrow for the Jewish nation. Verses 6 through 13, scripture proof that not all of Abraham's descendants were included in the promises. Verses 14 through 18, that there is no unrighteousness with God from a free bestowal of mercy and justice. Verses 19 through 24, God's sovereign will questioned by insignificant creatures improperly. And then verses 25 through 33, the rejection of the Jews and the call of the Gentiles was prophesied as were the means to those ends, one being faith in the chief cornerstone Christ and the other the seeking of a legal righteousness. Now then, let's look together at verses 1 through 3 of Romans 9. Verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Here notice, I say the truth in Christ, or literally, truth emphatically, I say in Christ. I am absolutely not lying. 
Please open to 1 Timothy chapter 2 of your Pew Bibles, page 1197. 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's a similar figure or form of speech that the apostle uses. 1 Timothy 2, 7. He's referring to our Lord who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Then verse 7, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ. I lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Notice there, the same affirmation. I speak the truth in Christ. Right after what? His apostleship. He is an inspired apostle speaking truth in Christ, and he affirms it with an oath. He lies not. Now, please turn back to Romans 8, and we'll consider this in more detail. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Why does he repeat this? Well, this is a common way of speaking among the Jews. You say something positively, then you say it negatively. She was a virgin, neither had any man known her. That's saying the same thing, one positive, one negative. I say the truth, nor do I lie. Absolutely not am I lying. He uses the stronger of the negatives. So here, notice, God emphasizes the truthfulness of what the apostle is saying. There is no lie. These are words divinely inspired in Christ Jesus as a holy apostle. And notice, furthermore, my conscience also bearing me witness. Now, the bearing me witness is a participle, and it describes how he's saying the truth. How am I saying the truth? My conscience bearing me witness. So here, the conscience, what does the conscience do? Now, let's talk about the word conscience, and it's the same in Greek. This is from a Latin, cum, which means together with, and scientia, which means knowledge or thought. So conscience is that which goes along with your thinking. It's the same in Greek, sunedison. Soon is together with. Edison is your thoughts or your way of thinking. So you have with your thoughts a little judge who sits there along with your thoughts and judges what you think, what you say, and what you do. And when your heart strikes you, your conscience says, guilty. It judges you and says, no, you're wrong. Here, notice, the apostle says, his conscience, as he spoke this truth, it bore witness to what he was saying and said, that's right. You're not telling a lie. You're telling the truth. His conscience approved of these words. Thayer says of this word conscience in his lexicon, it is the soul as distinguish, distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending the one and condemning the other. That's what a conscience does. It says, you ought to do this, you ought not to do that. And then if you've done something, it says, well done or bad job. That's what the conscience does. It's predictive and it's historical, you could say. It tells you what you should do in the future or not do, and then it'll tell you what you've done, whether it's good or evil. Here, notice, his conscience said, this is true. You're not sinning by saying this. The thing that you're going to affirm, your soul says this is morally good what you're saying. And notice, it wasn't merely his human conviction. First, it was in Christ, but what else? In the Holy Ghost. 
Now, this phrase, in the Holy Ghost, is used in the New Testament and generally means a person has God the Spirit moving them to say exactly what they say. Whether they're preaching the Word as the apostles preached infallibly or writing down the Scriptures or Christ preaching in the Holy Ghost. All this is under the dominion of the Spirit of God, divinely inspired by the Spirit. Thus then, this affirmation, this swearing, has three witnesses. First is Christ, second is his conscience, third is the Holy Ghost. You could say two or three, the Spirit and the Son, or the Spirit, the Son, and his conscience. They all bore witness to what he was saying. I note then this doctrine, solemn swearing is lawful for Christians. It is lawful for Christians to swear. They can swear to God, called a vow, or they can swear to men, called an oath. Men can do this. Magistrates can impose this. The church can impose this. Require people to take vows or oaths when necessary, when called upon to do so, for a lawful cause. The apostle calls three witnesses to the truth of this assertion. And in our confession of faith, we say the following, chapter 22, paragraph 1. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. That's what the apostle is doing. God has already judged what I'm saying, but what my conscience dictates is that this is true, so does the Spirit, so does the Son. This is a rebuke to the Anabaptists and others like them who say, well, Jesus said, swear not at all. Therefore, what Moses says about swearing, what Jeremiah says about swearing, what Paul does when he swears, not right. We have a perfect ethic that goes above and beyond those mere laws of God. We've got the teachings of Jesus, they say. No, they don't, actually. Jesus does not forbid swearing absolutely, but only relatively. You'll notice that if you look at the discourse. There are certain things about swearing you should not do, not by creatures, not falsely, etc. But it is lawful to swear, and here the apostle does, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Are we more righteous than the Spirit of God who moved him to make this oath? Of course we're not. We're wicked. Let us learn then to discern times and suitable occasions. Let us learn to swear in truth, in the ordinary sense of the words, to end controversies by God's name for his glory. Verse 2, here's what he swears to. Here's what the Holy Ghost bears witness in his conscience. Here's what Christ taught him to say. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now this word great is where we get our word mega from. It means really big, magnus in Latin. The great, great, big, mega heaviness. Now heaviness can refer to weeping and lamentation. It can even refer to a woman in labor with a baby. Please open to John 16 concerning this heaviness. Page 1086 of your pew Bibles. John 16. We're going to notice a difference between Paul's heaviness 
and the heaviness that Jesus mentions here. Starting at verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, that's our word heaviness, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, she hath heaviness, because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Now think about this. Jesus is saying that their heaviness, their sorrow, will one day depart, just like a woman goes through the anguish of childbirth, that crushing trial, phlipsis is a word that's used here, that wheel that crushes her. She goes through this heaviness and then it goes away. Why? She has a man-child. She forgets about her sorrow. And he says, when you see me again, you will forget your sorrow. But Paul says he had mega sorrows, great heaviness, lamentation, weeping as a woman in labor with the child. Did it stop? Let's turn back and look. Did Paul have an ending like the woman in labor? She sees the child and forgets about her sorrows. He says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. There is no rest for the Apostle Paul. Continual. Paul says to Timothy that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. 2 Timothy 1.3, it's the same word, without ceasing. There's not a point in the morning, in the afternoon, or in the evening that I don't have some sorrow over my brethren. Weeping, heaviness. Not a temporary sorrow of a woman in travail, wiped away by the sight of the man-child. No. He was sorrowful day and night, seemed to be without respite, Grief of mind, not merely external sorrow. He says it's in my heart, in the core of who I am. I have this grief. I'm not just pretending, in other words. It's not just the show of sorrow. It was genuine. His inner man. Now, this word continual sorrow. Do you remember when Rachel had her child, Benjamin? Do you remember what she first named Benjamin? before Jacob changed the name, she said his name is Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. Because as she bore that boy, what happened to her? She died, didn't she? She passed away in childbirth. She bled out, perhaps. She was dead. And as her spirit was leaving, she named the child Ben-Oni. There's our word, huias odenes, this is the son of my sorrow, she called him. Genesis 35, verse 18 in the Septuagint. It's the same exact word. Continual sorrow in my heart as a woman sorrows in her death as she delivers her child. Verse 3. 
For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now this word is a strange word. Many commentators have spent much time in consternation over this word. I could wish. What does it mean? Here he exposits his mega weeping, his sorrow day and night. This never-ending grief that he had in his inner man. Here he exposits. What do you mean? He could wish, he said. This is when something is desired or even prayed to God for. It's the same word, eukamai. If I could appeal to God, if I could pray to him, I desire this thing. I would ask this of him. Dana and Manti, in their manual grammar of the Greek New Testament, refer to this passage, could wish, as what they call the voluntative imperfect. It just means this. An imperfect verb is something that never comes to completion and happened in time past. Okay, so it kept on going. I wished for this, I wished for this, I wished for this, but it never came to fruition. An aorist tense happened at a point in time. Present tense is happening right now. Perfect tense means it was completed in time past and continues on in its effects. Imperfect means it never really got done. It's imperfect. And this voluntative imperfect means somebody wanted something to be attained. They wanted something to happen or to be realized, and it never happened. They wished for it. They wanted it, but they did not get it. Please open to Acts chapter 25 for instances of this same form of verb. Acts 25, we'll read verses 20 through 22. Page 1128 of your pew Bibles. Heathens speaking together. Verse 20. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him, that is Paul, whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. Notice, I would also hear. That's the imperfect tense. My desire has been to hear him, but I've never had it realized. That's what he's saying. It's an unfulfilled desire that I have. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he wishes he could be present and use a different tone of voice with the Galatians chapter 4 verses 19 and 20. Turn over to Philemon verses 10 through 13. Philemon page 1206, the same form of speech the voluntative imperfect, a desire unfulfilled. Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Notice there, 
I wished to retain him in your stead, but did that happen? Was it realized? No. It shows, Dana and Manti go on, a desire or disposition since the statement of a wish implies the lack of realization. Was Paul saying, I would go to hell so that the Jews could be saved? Is that what he's saying? No, it's an unrealized, voluntative, imperfect. My wish is that this were the case, that I could be anathema and they could go to heaven. Will that ever be realized? No, it will not. Back to Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans chapter 9, please. He has this disposition. He has this inclination. He has this unrealized desire that such would be the case. What was then the thing that he wished for? What was his inner dis disposition that was unrealized? That he were accursed from Christ for my brethren, he says. Now the word accursed is anathema. You know that the Eastern Orthodox have anathematized you and me because we believe the Bible is the word of God and the sole rule of faith and practice. Anathema to old Protestants, they said. Oh, if you believe that you're justified by faith alone without works, Rome says you're anathema, anathema too. What does anathema mean? I talked to a papist once who said it means you're like a brother who ran away from home, but you're still our brother. No, it doesn't. It means no such thing. Thayer's lexicon. Properly, a thing set up or laid by in order to be kept, specifically a votive offering. So I'm going to set aside this thing to be sacrificed, in other words. In the Septuagint, Thayer continues, it is generally a translation of the Hebrew word harem, a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed, a person or thing doomed to destruction. Do you remember the ban in Joshua that was violated by who? Anybody remember who violated the ban? When they took Jericho and they destroyed the walls and God gave them the victory. Achan. He took what? Slices of silver, Babylonish garments. What did God say to do with those? Put them under the anathema. We saw that when we read through in Joshua 6 and 7. God has cursed those things. Don't touch them. Destroy them. Don't even take the gold and silver. Anathema. I could wish, he says, that myself were anathema from Christ. Why? For the benefit of my brethren, he says. The holy apostles wish his disposition was that if he could be doomed and his brethren united to Jesus Christ, he would wish such a thing. Now, it is not possible. It was not possible. It did not happen. It is an unrealized disposition. But notice, this is the lesser light of the greater Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was anathema so that we might be accepted. Christ was. Who was the devoted sacrifice accursed by God so that we might be blessed? 
the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here the apostle borrows from the primal rays of Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, this little bit of light for his brethren, his kinsmen, he says, according to the flesh. Now this word means to be begotten of the same person, sungenos, one begotten of the same source. Freiburg says, those of a common origin, related by blood or akin to, substantively or as a noun in the New Testament, your relative or relatives, your kinsfolk, in a broader sense of the same race or people, fellow countrymen, fellow citizen, or close companions, intimate friends, or spiritual kinsmen. That's what the idea is here. My kinsmen, how? According to the flesh, he says. The Westminster Annotations say this concerning these words, which insinuateth a double kindred, carnal and spiritual. By the carnal, he was allied to the Jews, but by spiritual cognation to all the household of faith, consisting as well of Gentiles as Jews. I note then this doctrine. We'll look at three doctrines here from this most full text. First, a sound conviction of the sovereign decree of reprobation is not inconsistent with a desire for reprobates to be saved. For a man to desire a reprobate to be saved is not inconsistent with a belief that they have been predetermined as vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. That's what the passage will tell us. That's why he starts here. He's saying his sincere desire for men that God has devoted to destruction. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to come to the knowledge of Christ. Does he therefore deny the decree of reprobation? Absolutely not. But he still desires their salvation. We will see the crystal clear doctrine of reprobation in this passage, God willing. But this sound and high doctrine that God fits vessels of wrath to destruction did not make him lose compassion, love, or a mega heaviness, a continual sorrow for people who were, in fact, reprobates. A sound conviction of the sovereign decree of reprobation is not inconsistent with the desire for the salvation of reprobates. Let us then train our minds in the truth of God's decrees and our affections in a fervent love to sinners. John Trapp says charity is no churl. A churl wishes that you don't have good. No, love is not so, is no churl. Paul wished no personal ill to men who did him much ill. A second doctrine, there is a natural bond of love for kin that is wholesome, godly, and right. There is a natural bond of love for kin that is wholesome, godly, and right. Now, the wicked communists will tell you that everybody gets to do this except for who? White people. Well, if you're this color, you can love your people. And if you're a Jew, you can love your people. And if you're black, you can love your people. And if you're this subset of this group, you can love your people. But you white people don't love your own people. Is that true? 
Is that what the Bible says? No. There's a natural bond and love for kin that is wholesome, godly, and right. That's what the apostle had. His kinsmen according to what? The flesh. They were his people. He loved them. He wanted them in a special way to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And were it possible for him to be anathema, he would request that for their sake. He desired his own race, his own kinsmen to be saved. Now this is part of the fifth commandment. God says, honor thy father and thy mother. What does that mean about your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents? Well, it means you have to honor them too, in a lesser way, of course, because they're not your direct parents. But you must still honor them. You must still show respect. And if it's not inconsistent with the first table of the law, you must honor them. You are required to do so. Paul, you will see, did not embrace the doctrine of his parents. His father was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Where the Pharisees believed the scripture, he agreed with them. Where they departed from the scripture, he departed from them. But he still describes himself, you will find in the book of Acts, as a Pharisee. I am a man, a Pharisee, he says, the son of a Pharisee. Why? Because Pharisees were Orthodox, and he was Orthodox too. He honored his ancestors so far as he could, consistently with loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us learn a pious love for our people, for our parents, for our ancestors, those of our same race, according to the fifth commandment, and so far as is consistent with the first table of the law, to show that love as God requires. Another doctrine in complement to this. There is a spiritual bond and love for kin that is wholesome, godly, and right, and is eternal. A spiritual bond of kinship. We are begotten of whom? God himself. We are sungenos. We are kin with all believers, whether Jew or Gentile. When do our earthly races go away? Well, when you die. That's it. Your family connections are severed. Where do you go? One city, one people, one body, one bride. Our earthly races end upon our death. We all have one husband and we are one spouse. Paul had brethren begotten of the same fathers on earth, and he had brethren begotten of one father in heaven, and both he considered and called his kin, his brethren, Sungenos. He did not deny the former, that is, his earthly brethren, because of the latter, nor did he deny the priority of eternity based off of his earthly family. Let us then in imitation of the holy apostle, do good unto all men, but especially to whom? The household of faith, sungenoi, those begotten of the same father together with us, whether they be of our race or of another, since all are begotten of the same father. And thus far the exposition of the word of Almighty God from Romans 9, verses 1 through 3.